And please uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. This one uh, <clears throat> phrase in this hymn, Human counsels come to naught, that shall stand which God hath wrought, is something that I think is, uh, uh, we'll see as we look at these Proverbs tonight. And it's always a good principle to always remember in all things that uh, human counsels do come to naught. And God's purposes will, will not come to naught. They will always stand. And so our, our verses tonight are verses 5 and 6. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. So the title of this lesson tonight is Protected by Right Living. Both of these verses here teach us a lesson about sowing and reaping. We see good consequences coming from right living, and we see bad consequences coming from wrong living. And of course, perhaps the biggest debate in our society today is the matter of well, what is right living? How do you define right living? And lifestyles that are uh, that are an abomination to the sight of in the sight of God are promoted as right living in our society. And if you dare to speak out against it, then you're the bad guy and you're the one that's going to be suffering disapproval of society and uh, will be even persecuted. Well, with the world, we have a great disagreement about what is right and what is wrong. But for the Christian that believes the Bible, believes the Bible is God's word, uh, there should be no debate about what constitutes right living. God's word is a sufficient guide to us so that we know what is acceptable in God's sight. Now, there are always still differences of opinion about matters of Christian liberty, but uh, basic right and wrong about basic morality is agreed pretty much across the board in the Christian community, that is, the Bible-believing Christian community. And it isn't just that God will judge sinful lifestyles in the, in the next world. He judges them even now in this life. And that's what we see here in these Proverbs. If you pay attention to things at all in life, uh, it's apparent that living according to God's laws is good for us, and defying those laws is bad for us. Verse 6 says that righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. But this righteous man also hates lying or falsehood, as verse 5 says. And as ESV, ESV, ESV and other translations call this a falsehood or deception. You know, we teach our children early on that lying has bad consequences for us. Um, if a person is a liar... They'll certainly be caught sooner or later in their lies. And when they're found out, their reputation is ruined. Uh, and it's hard to get it back once it's ruined. And uh, I was talking to someone about that just today and how once a person has uh, lied to us, then don't we call into question everything that they tell us unless we're standing outside and it's, we're getting wet and, and there's dark clouds and they say it's raining well, then we might believe them that it's raining. But if it, they don't have to lie a whole bunch of times to you to get you to doubt their word. 
your reputation is, is ruined once you once you've been caught in a lie. And then and when it's vitally important for people to believe uh, believe you about something, well then uh, the liar is frustrated that his word means nothing. And of course we have the uh, the uh, story of the boy who cried wolf that's familiar to everybody. And, and he cried wolf, and, and uh, because he wasn't believed when the wolf really actually did come, it cost him his life. And so uh, he was overthrown by his own sin, as it says here, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Now, had he been known for honesty, and he'd never falsely cried wolf, his life would have been saved, wouldn't it? So verse 6 says, righteousness guards him, and it does so in many different ways. You've heard of the non-inspired proverb, honesty is the best policy. And if you took a, a group of, uh, let's say you took the, a group of the Rockford businessmen and you, and men and women, and you, and you put them all and you filled up this, uh, all the seats in this uh, auditorium with all the business people in uh, Rockford, and I was to say, now, how many of you agree with the saying that honesty is the best policy? Well, I pretty much guarantee that almost every one of them would raise their hand and they'd say that, uh, yeah, that's right. Honesty is the best policy. And, uh, and, and it, is a, it is the best policy. However, it's by faith in God and a love of honesty and a true evangelical hatred of lying that will keep us honest at all times. Now, here's an important principle to remember, and that is that a person's honesty is tested not in situations where it's obvious that honesty is the best policy, but in situations that arise for all of us often where it appears that just a little bit of shading of the truth, just a little bit of deception will work in our best interests. And... Um, and you know what I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Now, let me give you an illustration, something that happened at NAFCO very recently. Uh, a manager of one of our customers ordered us to do something. We'd had a major reject, and uh, it was back in April, and uh, they, they ordered us to do something. And NAFCO management, uh, I wasn't involved then because I was, I was off uh, on vacation, so the, the management that was there, they agreed that what the customer ordered us to do was really, truly was the best thing to do in the situation. Uh, and so we quite willingly, we would have obeyed them anyway, but we were even more than willing to, to do as they suggested, as they ordered us. Well, later on, when quizzed by their quality uh, people, uh, my management team was quizzed and they asked the question, did you feel pressure to take this course of action? Because the quality department of this customer disagreed with the course of action that was taken. And so they asked us, did you feel pressure to, uh, uh, to, uh, to go ahead and do this? And, uh, and my quality manager, manager knew that this guy wanted us to answer, yes, we did feel pressure, um, uh, even though we were ordered to do it. Well, uh, we felt no pressure because, again, we, we agreed with him. Uh, with this manager that ordered us to do this. So, so this quality manager was disappointed when we said, no, we felt no, no pressure. Uh, and, and, uh, it would have been very easy to say, well, uh, just not even to lie, but just to say, well, they ordered us to do it. And if you just said that, just that much, well, they ordered us to do it, it would have left the impression that we felt pressured 
to do it, and we did it against our will. But uh, that would have made us look good in the quality manager's eyes, but it would have been a deception. It would not have been the, the, the complete truth. Um, uh, and it would have been a half-truth that would have been, had been intended to deceive. It would have been a falsehood. You see, these kind of situations come up very often in business. And they really, truly, they come off up in your lives, don't they? Things like that, where it's you know, just shade the truth a little bit. Uh, and you all know and have experienced the temptation to shade the truth or give an answer that's only partially true, which really conveys a falsehood. And worldly people that will gladly agree with this maxim that honesty is the best policy will often, in those occasions, make an exception to that rule. They often cave into dishonesty because they see that a falsehood will help them look better and they reason that, well, it's just a little thing. It's, I'm not, it's not an out-and-out out lie. It's just a little bit of shading of the truth. And you see, you see it's because they don't love righteousness. You see, when they say honesty is the best policy, it's just because honesty is the best policy when it seems that honesty really is the best policy. It all has to do with what seems to work best. And so if, if a little white lie will work, then we'll go ahead and do that. But they go further than that. We know that businessmen go further than that. And they'll come out and outright do a ball-faced lie if they think that's going to save their business or that's going to help them look better in front of their customers. And they'll, and they'll come to the chamber meeting and they'll say, yep, honesty is the best policy. But, but they don't really practice it because it's got to be something that you do from within, something from a principle within, something from your relationship with God. That's what drives honesty. That's why it says in verse 5, a righteous man hates lying. He hates falsehood because it's, he knows that it's offensive to God and he learns to hate it. So responding righteously, as was done in this situation, it's gotten us a reputation for integrity that's helped us on different occasions with uh, uh, certain customers that where we've been in a situation where we didn't have any proof for what we were saying, but we were simply believed because they believed that we're honest. Now, here you take two children. One is known for lying occasionally, and the other is known for being honest, even when it comes, uh, when it, even when it might get him or her into trouble. Now, this, this uh, child is also known for being kind and never causing trouble. Now then, uh, imagine then there's an altercation of some kind in the classroom and the only witnesses are these two children. Now the school principal who knows these children hears both stories which are radically different. Which one will he believe? Now this is a real situation. I was talking to a man uh, just a couple months ago uh, who his daughter is the one they always call in because they know she was in the classroom her version is always going to be the truthful version. And so it's because of her reputation. So it's not a far-fetched scenario at all. In fact, I, I know a scenario where there was two bad boys, and they were uh, in a situation where there was a parked truck in a field, and one of those bad boys threw a rock through the back window of the truck. And he came back, and when it was known the back window was broken, and it was suspected which boys were involved in this, this boy lied and said that the other bad boy had done it. And the bad boy, the other bad boy, had not done it. 
But he had a reputation for lying, just like the other boy that did throw the rock through the window. Well, what a situation for parents to have to deal with. But in this particular case, there was a third boy that did actually witness the situation. And this third boy is a boy that was known for integrity. He was known for honesty. And so the third boy was asked and he told, he told the truth, which boy threw the rock. And then it was known who threw the rock. Otherwise, without that, nobody could have possibly known. And it all comes down to what is the pattern of their life. The Bible says even a child is known by their ways, whether they, whether they are good or whether they are evil. See, without the one honest boy as a witness, we simply just couldn't have known what would have happened. So do you see how righteousness guards him whose way is blameless? And not only does it guard him himself, but sometimes he's a guard to someone else. Like, for example, he, he rescued the one bad boy who was innocent in this situation by his own honesty. So your honesty can help you and it can help someone else. So righteous living guards us in many uh, practical ways. I think about obeying traffic laws and not speeding, not uh, <laughs> I was going to say not driving sober, <laughs> not driving sober, uh, not texting and driving. All of these things could keep us from a traffic accident that could kill or injure somebody or someone else. Uh, I told you the story before about one of the farm boys just down the road from us uh, many years ago when my kids were in high school and he was 15 years old and uh, he was picked up by another boy and uh, to go into town. And then they picked up two other uh, young boys in Sherland, and uh, and they uh, uh, the kid that was driving was going. They estimate probably 90 miles an hour, and on Forest Preserve Road there, it's a little day. He claims a deer jumped out in front of him. Anyway, he wrapped the tree around a car, killed everybody in the car except the driver. Now, can you imagine? Uh, this boy's got to live with this the rest of his life, and I and I one of my daughters knows him and. And knows that it's, it's it is a it is a hard thing for him to live with, knowing that he killed three of his friends, and why he was living unrighteously, he was not obeying the the, the rules, he was he was he was sinning, and his sin got people actually killed. Um, and now let me let me say something. To this we got a few young people in here. Listen to me. If you're ever in a car, and they're driving recklessly, you tell them. You let me, you either drive responsibly or you stop and you let me out. And if they refuse, then you say, look, I will tell my parents and you're going to be in big trouble. You better enforce that. Because if one of these three boys that died that night had done that, those boys would have lived. And so I've exhorted my daughters when they were that age. I said, don't you ever ride with a boy that's driving recklessly and, and keep your mouth shut. Don't you ever do that. Your very life could be. In danger. That's just a, you know, since we got some young people in here, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just mention that. Hopefully, uh, you'll never be in a situation like that. But young, especially boys, teenage boys, can be that way. And I was one of them. And uh, and I could have got myself killed. I could have got other people killed. And uh, thank God I didn't. But uh, you know, see, it's the practical ways that righteous living. Uh, can can save us, can keep us, as it says here. I think about this NAFCO employee that you all know about uh, who died of a drug overdose here this last year, and she was a mother of three children. 
Uh, she'd been clean uh, for some time through keeping the program at Victory Outreach. Um, and uh, uh, she yielded to temptation. She, some man incited her, I mean, uh, and, you know, tempted her to go to a party she shouldn't have gone to. And she ended up using and, and evidently there was too much fentanyl or something in the in the needle. And anyway, she, she died uh, almost instantly. And and um, but you see, had she had she said no when she was faced with the temptation to backslide and to do drugs, this this righteousness would have guarded her and would have saved her life, and it also would have kept her children from becoming orphans. So these are just some examples, uh, practical examples. But I could ask you, and you could tell me examples of people, things, of situations that you know about as well that are just as tragic. Well, we read in many places how God is a shield to us. Psalm chapter 5, verse 12, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. You, you're, with favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Psalm 28, 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. Psalm 33:20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And I just picked out a few. I mean, there's, there's quite a number of verses like this. Now, there are two ways, though, that God is a shield to us. One way is the way that we normally think of when we think of a shield, we think of God protecting us from our enemies. We think of like the fiery darts of the wicked one talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. We take up the shield of faith with which we will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Uh, our faith prevents us from succumbing to the temptations that the devil throws at us. Our faith makes his fiery darts ineffective. But the other way that God shields those that are his are like it's, it's like this. We follow his guidelines. We walk in obedience to him. And so in, in, our, in our, uh, uh, our, our day-to-day decisions, we make these decisions in the light of God's word in accordance to biblical principles. And our conscience guides us in that and, and the Holy Spirit, of course. And, and we, want to, we want to make our decisions based on what we know is God's will. And then by doing this, we avoid many pitfalls and dangers that the unrighteous fall into by their thoughtless and careless words and actions. So righteousness in this way guards him whose way is blameless. Now, I want to qualify all this, and we're going to be going to the New Testament in just a minute, and that is this does not mean that if we walk blamelessly before God, we'll not have trouble. God tells us in many places in the Bible that the righteous will certainly have trouble. He, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And then, of course, we have the, the chastening that all of God's children must endure. Uh, Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And, of course, you know that's a quote from Proverbs. And 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice. Now, he's been talking about our heavenly inheritance. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, uh, um, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
So clearly, as a Christian and as an obedient one, uh, you will experience trouble. And so then uh, the question can come to our minds, if I'm going to experience trouble anyway, how is it that righteousness guards me from trouble, right? Uh, Read Asaph, Psalm 73. Well, the answer is this, and that is that if we experience trouble that we bring upon ourselves by our own sin, we simply reap what we sow. We don't, we don't get any good outcome from it. Um, it. It comes to no good end. But if we experience trouble that's brought about by either God's chastening hand working on us or by persecution for righteousness, then we suffer for God's glory and for a good purpose and we will be rewarded for it. And so for that, I'd like for you to turn then for, to First Peter chapter 2. And uh, I want to look at a few things in First Peter chapter 2 uh, for the rest of our uh, study here tonight. <clears throat> Just to talk a little bit about this. First Peter chapter 2, I want us to read verses 18 through 23. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, I want to draw your attention to the short phrase that we find at the beginning of verse 21. For to this you were called. This is a significant statement. You know, if we divide believers up into segments, we'd find that some are called to this uh, profession, some are called to that profession, uh, some are called to do this, some are called to do that. Every Christian has a story. Every Christian has a calling. He has a mission in life to fulfill. Um, and, and it's very helpful for us to always keep in mind that God has called us to this calling whatever he's called us to, uh, even if it's just temporarily. I think of an example of a, of a mother raising her child uh, or raising her children for God. Uh, she can be comforted and she can be encouraged as she does so by knowing that God has called her to this task. And she can endure the long sleepless nights that come from attending sick children and the days that's, that are so filled with what seems to be endless and repetitious and thankless activities that every mother has to go through. Well, what is her comfort? Well, knowing that God has called her to the task of motherhood is very, very helpful in those situations. And it's the same for the husband. that There may be a husband that's struggling to do his job day by day, and he has a job that has so many stresses that sometimes he doesn't know how he can endure through another week. Uh, but knowing that God has called him to this job, at least for now, it'll help him to endure the troubles and the stresses and the disappointments that his employment brings. 
He knows he's got responsibilities at home. He, he needs, uh, uh, there are needs that only he can meet through his job and, and that God has given him a calling that can accomplish those things, however difficult and daunting it might be. And so knowing that God has called him to that is, is, is helpful. Uh, by the way, let me just say, I, I, I like to put this, uh, uh, in this thought in, in this as well, and that is away with this foolish and worldly notion that if you don't truly love and enjoy your work, you should give it up so you can pursue a career that you enjoy. That is just rubbish. Uh, there are people that do have jobs and careers like that, and, you know, I'm all for it. When I see somebody in a situation like that, I think, you know, that's great. I've maybe worked that way maybe for a year or two in my entire life. Uh, my job is difficult, and there's been times you know very well. I've told you how difficult it is, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I am a little ashamed because I don't have enough faith to, to uh, sometimes to stand up as I ought to as a Christian man in my job. But, uh, but most of the time I hate my job, but I do it because God has called me to it, and this is what I do best. And it's kind of like that song, uh, only us old people remember the song, it's the only thing I can do half right and it's turning out all wrong. And sometimes I feel that way, but it is what God has called me to. And so um, uh, so if you've got a job that's wonderful and you love it, i got a grandson right now that just absolutely loves his job. He just can't wait to get to work every single day. And I say, well, hooray, I hope you can do that the rest of your career. That's great. I'm glad for you. But but the fact of the matter is sometimes, for most of us anyway, we earn our bread by the sweat of our brow through many tribulations. And uh, But we're sustained in it by knowing that God has called us in it. But here in 1 Peter 2.21, we have a calling that is the same calling for every blood-bought child of God in the universe. It's universal. No one is excluded from this call. We are Every one of us called in this way. And what is this calling? The calling is that we are to suffer as Christ has suffered. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be nailed to a cross, but it means what it says in these very verses. How do you suffer as Christ has suffered? Well, here we find the difference between the suffering that occurs because of our own foolish ways and uh, our own sin and the suffering uh, of a true Christian under the humbling hand of God. Suffering for our own is empty and useless and is sometimes tragic. But suffering under the hand of God, not on account of our own sin, it commends us before God. It's not useless, but it brings honor to God and to ourselves. Let me read verse 21 again. It says, For to this you were called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Do you see what this is teaching you? Every single one of us are called to suffering. But we're called to a special kind of suffering. Um, uh, you know, and I, and I, I think uh, in, in the minds of some, when we come to Christ, and I know it was this way for me when I was a brand new Christian, uh, coming to Christ, I thought... Uh, uh, it means that with every step, uh, flowers and butterflies and bluebirds are, uh, you know, all around me every step I take and the sun is shining and the breeze is blowing ever so gently. And with each step, I'm following Jesus. It's so nice. And we're greeted with smiling faces with everybody that we meet. 
But that's not what Peter says really is the Christian life. He says that Jesus suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And what does following in his steps really mean? It doesn't mean butterflies and bluebirds. Verses 22 and 23. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And this is what we are called to do. And if we don't suffer in this way, we are not following in the steps of Jesus. There are two basic ways that we can suffer as Christ has, and so we follow in his steps. First of all, when we suffer innocently, as it says in verse 20, uh, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently, you see. Um, We have to suffer uh, innocently to be suffering as Christ suffered. Uh, This is obvious. Uh, But the second way we we need to suffer is really the hardest way, and that is, Uh, we see that we must suffer without retaliation and without complaint. Now, we see both of these here in verse 23. Uh, It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Uh, So we need to, uh, we we see both of these things here. Now, these things go against our very natures, uh, and especially when we suffer unjustly. When we suffer unjustly, what's the first thing we want to say? Yeah, exactly. That's right here in my notes. It's not fair. You've never said that. No. But but I've said it. And I bet you there's a few of you that have said it. That's not fair. Well, that's the first thing that we think of when we suffer unjustly. It's not fair. And guess what? You know what? It isn't fair. That's not the point. Jesus could have said that. Couldn't Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, said, this just isn't fair. Can you imagine, you know, some of the language that comes out of people's mouths today when they say, this isn't fair, this, you know, and they say other things about it? Jesus could have said those things. I mean, he couldn't say those things because he was, you know, he was uh, the son of God and he was, uh, I don't know the word for it, I can't think of it right now, but uh, he wasn't about to say those things. But Jesus really, truly was suffering innocently, more innocently than we have ever suffered, and he didn't cry out and say, God, this isn't fair. <laughs> that wasn't the point. And uh, uh, he committed, it, it says here, uh, he's, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. There was never a complaint but there was a quiet submission to the will of God. And this is what God wants out of us. He wants us to suffer without complaining. He wants us to suffer committing ourselves to him who judges righteously because we believe he really does do righteously. And he really is going to make this thing come out all right in the end if I'll continue to trust him through it. Now, what's the first thing we want to do? The first thing we want to say is that's not fair, but the first thing we want to do is we want to retaliate. You made me suffer, now you're going to suffer. Isn't that the the way man responds to these things? Jesus could have retaliated at the cross. You think those little tiny worms 
They were strutting up and down in front of the cross saying, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and all that. Can you imagine saying that to the God of the universe? I mean, he could have squashed them like little bugs. It would have been so easy if Jesus, for Jesus to retaliate. And he had to restrain himself, I'm sure. But the fact is, he didn't retaliate. And if anybody could have, it would have been him. Instead, what did he do? He said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And guess what? That's what God wants us to do. That's the way we're supposed to suffer when we're suffering unjustly. It's hard enough to do just when you have a flat tire at a real bad time when you're late for an appointment. Right? I mean, that's hard enough to suffer in a righteous way. And that's not suffering unjustly. It's just, you know, that's just the way things happen sometimes. But when somebody's really being mean to you, somebody's really being unkind to you, and you're really truly suffering unjustly, to respond in this way takes grace. It takes real grace. It takes more grace than... uh you know, it's real easy to talk about it. It makes more grace than we can just talk about it. It takes the kind of grace that really is the Holy Spirit working in our life, conforming us into the image of Christ. Being conformed into the image of Christ looks like this. The way Jesus suffered. Now, how do we relate what Peter's saying here with Proverbs 13:6? Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Well, I've already hinted at it and mentioned a couple things. Well, we have two places that we can stand in our sufferings. We're going to have to suffer at some time in our lives. I think I've covered that. You're going to suffer if you're wicked. You're going to suffer if you're righteous. We can't get out of this world without suffering. But there's two places we can stand. We can stand with Adam and we can suffer under condemnation or we can stand with Christ and we can partake of his suffering as we've talked about here tonight. We can suffer for the glory of God, the glorification of God and of ourselves also. And um, we can suffer without hope in Adam or we can suffer with hope in Christ. We suffer under God's frown or under his smile. We can suffer in unbelief and sin or we can suffer in faith and in righteousness. We can suffer eternally because of a moment's sinful pleasure or we can suffer for a moment for an eternity of pleasures at the right hand of God. See, there's a big difference. And, uh, and, and the question is, how are you living how are you fulfilling your calling? Are you fulfilling your calling? Well, only you can answer that for yourself. Are you learning to suffer as Jesus did? I, I hope as you're growing in grace, you're growing more and more into the image of Christ, and you're learning more and more that when these situations come up, they don't always come up every single day, but when they do come up and they surprise you, how do you respond to them? Do you really carry through with your threats? I mean, it's pretty easy to start off complaining, but then we quickly repent and say, well, well, that's right, God, I'm not supposed to complain. Forgive me. And then we ask God to give us grace to get through this in a godly way. Uh, none of us are uh, have perfected uh, ourselves yet, and uh, we're going to have struggles responding in this way. But when we do, we ask God to forgive us, and we move forward and we try uh, to respond in the way that Jesus Christ 
would have us to. And so uh, this is the way we should view uh, God's word in our lives, that it should be a guide to us and a shield to us. And it really is. Uh, every time you don't text a drive, think about this proverb. Every time uh, you're tempted to, uh, 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 to do something you know, illegal while you're driving or dangerous while you're driving, you think about this proverb. Uh, and there's so many other things in life uh, that, you know, think about them. Think about that uh, God is a shield to us. And his laws shield us. His ways shield us. And, and he, he knows what's best for us. And when we sin, what we're really saying is, well, you know, I don't know if God really was right about this in every instance. You know, this is, a, this is an exception. Doesn't the devil whisper that in your ear? Here's an exception. Here's an exception when I can respond with retaliation. Here's an exception when I, when I really can break the law of God and, uh, and it's going to be okay. Here's an exception where I can shade the truth. I think it's almost necessary that I shade the truth in this situation just to keep myself out of trouble. Uh, no, no, let's, uh, let's, let's hate falsehood as the righteous man does, as it says here in verse, uh, uh, verse 5, and, uh, and let's let the, the law of God be a shield to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.